0: Not
1: Good morning. This is Talking Animals on WMNF. I'm Duncan Strauss. My guest today is Marky Hauber, an ornithologist, professor, and executive director of the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. Hauber previously served as the Harley-Jones Van Cleve Professor of Host Parasite Interactions at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Hauber is also the author of Bird Day, a story of 24 hours and 24 avian lives. Physically, it's a small book about the size of your hand, yet it contains a huge idea. Indeed, Bird Day executes a nifty premise in fewer than 150 mini-pages, Haber creates something resembling an hourly guide profiling 24 birds with an hour each devoted to examining a varied flock of birds who live across the world. With beautiful illustrations provided by noted artist Tony Angel, the book starts with a barn owl at midnight, concluding at the other end with a European robin at 11 p.m., Within that scope of two dozen species, Halbert provides close-up glimpses of an arresting array of birds from those first-up barn owls who are able to hunt quite successfully in total darkness to the common plushard, a type of duck who can sleep with one eye open to remain alert to predators, the brown-headed cowbird, whose females are so-called brood parasitic, meaning they lay their eggs in the nests of other birds, to the bat hawk, who can open its mouth unusually wide, all the better to swallow bats whole, and plenty of them. This just represents four of the book's 24 birds. We'll discuss some of the birds featured in Bird Day and likely other avian topics, I'm a little bit about his background as well, of course, when I speak with Mark, however, in a moment here on Talking Animals on WMNF. Meanwhile, coming up later in today's program, I'll speak with Matt Shelley. The organizer of Punks for Paws an all day extravaganza of punk music featuring a dozen bands. Happening this Saturday, December 9th at Pinellas Ale Works in St. Petersburg. The proceeds of the concert will go to Friends of Strays Animal Shelter, also in St. Pete. More detail, more details on this benefit, including some of the bands performing later in the show. Right now, though, let's talk birds with Mark E. Halber. With a reminder that I invite you to join the conversation by calling 813 813- emailing dj at wmnf.org or texting 813-433-0885 let's welcome Mark E. Howard to Talking Animals on WNF Good morning Mark Good morning, how are you? Very well, thank you so much for joining us on Talking Animals Thanks And congratulations
2: on the new book I'm very excited. It just came out yesterday.
1: I know. Uh, we, uh, we didn't time it coincidentally. We thought, let's give it one publication day, one publishing day, and then, boom, let's start talking about it the next day. So, um, now, so I really don't know your story. That's one of the things I'm here, of course, t- today to find out. But I'm guessing your passion for birds goes back decades. When exactly did, it first, did you first become interested in birds?
2: Um, I'm a terrible role model because I always was interested in birds ever since I was five years old. Uh, growing up in Hungary, um, I would drag my mother during the spring vacation to see um, house martins come and nest um, under uh, eaves and uh, balconies and the, com- and the white storks nesting on chimneys and uh, other tall features of, uh, of buildings. And so, you know, I was always interested in birds. I never wanted to be anything else but an ornithologist all my life.
1: So how 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 young were you when you were dragging your mom to uh, to check out the uh, spring mitigation?
2: Uh, I was about four or five years old wow uh, we, we had these large colonies of house martins in a small town in Hungary and uh you know they would come back every spring from Africa and uh you know rebuild their nest and start feeding their babies and uh you know poop on the balconies of course uh you know so people you know thought they were an- an- but uh yeah. yeah yeah for sure but uh you know other people put uh, uh little protectors under their uh, their nests and uh you know let them uh, let them breed every year. So it was it was very exciting for
1: sure. So from that, what sounds like super precocious uh, fondness and, and, and passion, really, even at that point for birds. When when did it did it shift into kind of more um, what well you might say? I guess even conventional birding. When did you start looking for certain birds and you know, maybe keeping track of them, that kind of thing?
2: Oh, sure. So I was reading a lot of books in the library, and also when I was growing up in Hungary, we had uh, a young uh, birders' club. Um, The Hungarian Ornithological Association organized uh, bi-weekly trips, you know, to the countryside, uh, the mountains, the plains. Uh, they had summer camps, and so I would participate in all of those. You know, uh, taking my binoculars with me, and then slowly I started getting into uh, bird banding, uh, assisting at uh, migratory bird banding operations. You know, in the center of Hungary, and uh, getting my hands, uh, um, you know, exposed to how to take birds out of mist nets, things like that. And so, you know, this physical contact and uh, and and also the ability to be able to travel locally to see the birds uh, was a big advantage for me to, um, you know, solidify my interest in the birds.
1: Yeah, it sounds like... uh there was never really a possibility of you doing probably anything else, uh, right? <laughs>
2: I mean, well, um, you know, it was interesting because, you know, of course there were adults, you know, leading these birding trips and they said, you can't make it uh, as a, a profession to be a, a bird watcher and ornithologist. Uh, and so when I was in Hungary um, in high school, I actually applied to veterinary school to go to college, but uh, I was fortunate to get a scholarship to Yale University as an undergrad. And, you know, I've never looked back um, to veterinary science, um, I just started working on birds, uh, um, you know, from my second year in undergrad, and never stopped
1: since. Have you had a chance to go back and tell those folks, "Hey, remember when you said I couldn't make this work just uh, just on birds? Look at me now, pals!" Right. <laughs> uh,
2: uh, you know. Um, I, I, I did meet a lot of Hungarians. Uh, Hungarians are very proud, and so they said, "Why did you leave Hungary? Uh, we have very good universities here." And uh, I said, "Well, you know, I had a chance to uh, 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 to travel the world as part of my profession, and uh, I enjoyed that. And so um, I actually collaborate with a lot of Hungarian ornithologists. Uh, we work on cuckoos, uh, common cuckoos in Hungary, which mm. is one of the chapters. And uh, and so I'm giving back by uh, by being a good colleague for them."
1: Yeah, and so as early as uh, getting that scholarship to Yale, were were you even then um, focusing on birds, or was it more kind of like the general science biology kind of approach
2: as an undergrad? Yeah, so actually my first year I wanted to travel. I got a scholarship from Yale to spend the summer doing uh, original research. And so I went to Panama and I studied spiders and wrote a couple of papers and my undergraduate thesis on papers. But starting my second year uh, in undergrad, uh, every summer was spent on doing uh, uh, field projects on birds, uh, getting paid to do research for birds. Uh, um, So I I traveled to Missouri, to uh, to New Hampshire. And then, uh, you know, when graduate school came around, and uh, there was no other choice but uh, but getting into a program where I could focus on ornithology. Yeah,
1: and in those earlier years, like when you were studying the, the spiders, or even or even before you went off to to Yale, were there uh, were, were you interested at all in other animals, or was it always just birds, birds and
2: and more birds? I, I was interested in other animals. Um, I read a lot about amphibians, you know, I think frogs and uh, mm-hmm. newts are super interesting. Uh, spiders uh, were actually a great discovery for me in, uh, in undergraduate. Uh, um, they do everything, you know, they have crazy mating systems, you know, they build all kinds of traps to, uh, to capture their prey. They are colorful, they live everywhere. They can fly, you know, by ballooning on their uh, their silk. Um, and so I was excited to, uh, to, to learn about spiders and i also became interested in, in spider coloration which is sort of the theme of my research even in birds so um you know i did a lot of uh, um a lot of studies on why different uh, webs are differently colored in spiders and then i used those skills to understand why different bird eggs are different colors
1: yeah and why i'm not surprised that part of the fascination of spiders was that they fly
2: <laughs> of course, yeah. Know, uh, they 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 can fly. They can you know occupy all kinds of habitats. They're some of the earliest arrivals on the uh, after volcanic eruptions, um, and of course, birds are some of the other ones. And so, you know, sort of the spiders come, the birds come, the birds disperse some of the seeds, and they eat the spiders, and you know, you start a brand new ecosystem.
1: This is Talking Animals on WNF. I'm Duncan Strauss. If you just tuned in, my guest is Mark E. Howber, a professor, ornithologist, and the author of Bird Day, a story of 24 hours and 24 avian lives. If you have a question for Mark about birds or would like to offer a comment about birds, please call 813-239-9663, email dj at org, or text 813-433-0885. So, Mark, is there ever, like, a distinction of what you're doing and have long been doing academically um, from what someone who just loves birding as a as a kind of just a, a, a serious hobby and, and passion that way, or has it always just been sort of blended for you and, and there's not much separation?
2: <clears throat> That's a very good question. So, you know, as a scientist... I need permits to study birds. They are vertebrates. You know, they are under a lot of uh, rules and regulations. And so, you know, my question about birds is trying to understand what is it that they are doing, how they communicate with each other, what do they see, um, how I can I can probe their brains and their minds about questions. And all of that requires permitting. So, you know, it's very different from going out to the pair of binoculars uh, um, and, uh, and, and asking the questions, who are the birds here today? What are they doing? you know, how they are interacting yeah. with each other. We, you know, I, I, I spend a lot of my time, you know, asking the federal and state governments and my university to allow me to work on birds. And, you know, of course, that's that's a, a very ethical and uh, and serious thing to do. But once you get those permits, um, you know, it becomes your passion again. Uh, um, you know, I, I play around with uh, 3D-printed bird eggs, paint them different colors, and uh, put them into the bird's nest and ask them what will you do? Will you accept it? Will you Rejected, you know what is the combination of the eggs that's most appealing to you uh, you know what makes an egg uh, um, you know distasteful or uh, or smell funny uh, uh, from the perspective of the birds and so you know once you start doing the experiments you can really ask these questions you know what are the birds thinking
1: yeah no it sounds fascinating and i'm curious that like early on because as we've established, you, you love birds from the time you are a little kid, um, and pretty much that's been a, a through line. But was there ever any point, especially when you stepped into academia or otherwise, where you thought, hey, this, this is actually kind of compromising or affecting my passion for birds because I've got I've to do this paper or I've got to do this study that um, is kind of derailing me from my direct deep love of birds?
2: Um, no, I, I enjoy writing. You know, I, I have these two books, the the Book of Eggs uh, yeah. uh from about, you know, nine years ago and now the birthday book uh and so um I actually feel like I owe it to the birds when I study them to write up the paper. Hmm. Um, you know, it's an ethical obligation. You know, if the experiment is successful you wanna tell the story to the world. If the experiment doesn't work you wanna tell people, hey, don't do this because it's not gonna work. Um and so I feel like any time I disturb the birds I owe it to them to write about them, um, you know, for peer-reviewed publications or, or you know, um, technical reports or something like that um, so that, you know, we can enjoy the birds, you know, for what they do and uh, not have to worry about uh, bothering them uh, for things that are not going to work out. Yeah. Well, that
1: kind of raises an interesting point, I guess, because um, you, you're writing academic papers and, and doing studies and things and uh, publishing those. Uh, so what prompted, especially with the uh, Book of Eggs, which we'll get into uh, in a second, and of course, we'll delve more deeply in a moment, in a moment or two into bird, bird Day. But what prompted your desire to write books for a ma- more mainstream audience than just your uh, peers in academia?
2: Um, so, so, two things, you know, uh, when I went to libraries you know, as a kid, I enjoyed those uh, you know, semi academic, semi popular type of books because uh, that was the first way I could learn about the science behind um, bird watching, behind ornithology.
1: Because and, it was uh, kind of more accessible?
2: exactly yeah. exactly you know it didn't have the jargon it didn't have you know the paywall um, you know you could you could access things in in the library you know at a level that was uh that was approachable and uh, and understandable uh, you know for for you know a non trained person and so i i felt like you know i've i've Done enough research on bird eggs and uh, and uh, bird behavior that uh, that perhaps some of these stories uh, could be told and you know maybe bring somebody back into uh, academia and 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 encourage them to become an ornithologist by training or you know if they spend one percent of their income on donating uh, to things you know working on uh, avian conservation uh, um, um, you know donating money to people who preserve habitats for birds and uh, and other uh, um, uh, you know of the ecosystem, so I, I feel like it's you know it's sort of my job to give back uh, uh, because I like the birds so much.
1: Right, no, that makes sense. So, can you describe uh, for people who might not have had a chance to see it, the Book of Eggs? Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, so the Book of Eggs is, is a heavy book. It's much bigger than the current book. Uh, yeah. Uh, my mother thinks it's, you know, it's what I do. Uh, I uh, read books, you know. Um, um, she doesn't care about the peer-reviewed papers. Uh, um, okay. So, so she was very happy about it. Uh, uh, it's 600 species of birds, their eggs, their nesting habits, uh, their reproductive biology uh, pictures, their distribution. But most importantly, it's got an image of a life-size uh, um, egg depiction on every page. And so, you know, when you have something like An ostrich or an elephant bird, it barely fits on the page, or doesn't even fit on the page. When you have a hummingbird, you know several uh, eggs can fit on the same page. Uh, So I'm excited about it because it has this physicality, uh, uh, both on the cover and on the pages of the book. You see a real-sized egg uh, that you can, you know, just imagine. You know, the bird sitting on it, incubating it, uh, the embryo hatching out of it. uh, You know, all kinds of biological questions.
1: So it's really it's it's quite tangible, and it's like. This, I'm not just telling you about what the uh, what this particular egg would be like. I'm 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 giving you the
2: egg basically in your hand practically. Very much so. Yeah. Exactly. My dream is to uh to actually uh, have an appendix uh where you have code uh, to actually print out each of the egg in the each of the eggs in the book, uh um, you know, in a three D printer and then give you a code on how to paint them and then you get, you know, sort of a life size replica um of an actual egg and you don't have to go to a museum to uh to or you don't have to collect eggs in the field uh you know, which used to be hundred, two hundred years ago I think. You know, fortunately we don't do that anymore.
1: Yeah. Well, that's, uh, that's interesting. You mentioned 3D printed uh, printer bird eggs earlier, so that makes sense that you would provide the, the chance for people that, that were inclined to do that pretty soon. They have their own uh, spare room or den or bedroom or whatever full of uh, life-size eggs
2: yeah it it'd be great uh you know uh, i i really think that uh that bird, bird eggs you know we used to think that bird eggs are are some of the most um diversely colored and patterned uh, uh, structures in biology uh, it turns out that uh that uh, that flowers and the bird feathers are much more colorful but the patterning those spotting patterns you know the the ink mark like uh uh, uh twiggles and the other things that uh, that cover bird eggs are really superb and uh the science behind it how birds perceive are these, uh, these different markings is, is still lagging behind how birds perceive color so there's a lot more work to be done on that as well
1: but is it is the reason that like your first uh, book of this kind uh, it was the book of eggs uh, was that again because you, you had such a profound fascination for that the, just that whole realm of eggs and all the different things you just described about their appearance and what the, what it suggests and uh, and <laughs>
2: Well it's it, it turns out because I study cowbirds and cuckoos, as you mentioned, birds yeah. that lay their eggs in other birds' nests, uh, the the primary defence of the host the, the foster parents is to reject the eggs and so uh, i've been studying egg rejection behavior for quite some time before the book of eggs came along um, and uh, the human frontier science program, which is sort of an international uh, science foundation uh, um, supported by the u s and other countries uh, gave me a million dollars to study eggs you know when I was a, a young uh, um, academic and so i I sort of owed it to the world to to give back and that's sort of where my passion for the book of x came
1: about so uh, make sure I understand it right they gave you 000, 000, like, like a million dollars <laughs> like is that uh, like some sort of uh, sprawling uh, research grant or how did that yeah, work we, it-
2: we got a, 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 a we had uh, a fo- uh, three participants and uh, and uh, um, from three different countries for three years and the totality of the grant was about a million dollars you know uh, uh, to um, recruit people postdocs uh, graduate students uh, to pay for travel to pay for the 3d printing uh, you know analyze the data get the equipment Uh, you know when you say we study bird color you know it's not a photograph right we have specialized equipment that costs tens of thousands of dollars to be able to understand how the color is reflected from the bird eggs because birds see color very differently from humans and so we need to account for that you know you might see something that's blue or green but the birds might see the ultraviolet uh, reflectance of those colors too and so when you study bird egg colors you have to account for um, the, the, the um, sophistication of the avian visual system.
1: So I guess I uh, can't help but ask, how, how do you and, and fellow researchers uh, know or how did you learn how the birds saw the color differently from how we see the color?
2: Uh, so there's there's two approaches, or at least three approaches. Uh, you can um, ask questions about the the genetic makeup of the birds, and uh, and so they have uh, visual um, uh, sensory uh, uh, um, uh, molecules called opsins, and you can sequence their genome to ask the question: Do they contain an opsin that's ultraviolet sensitive or violet sensitive? So do they see into the ultraviolet range or not? And so we've done that, and we've discovered that uh, that kiwis and uh, ostriches were ultraviolet sensitive uh, uh, um, and, um, you know, some of the, uh, um, the corvids, for instance, crows are, are not ultraviolet sensitive. So those are things you can do by, by analyzing the genome. Uh, you could also ask the question behaviorally. So, you know, the, the most simple experiment is take an egg, know that it has ultraviolet reflectance and put sunscreen on it. The sunscreen blocks the ultraviolet reflectance. And then you can ask the bird, will you respond to an egg differently when I block the UV component of the reflectance of the color itself uh, and then the third way is you know sort of the most invasive way and it's only been done for really, really less than five species of songbirds for instance uh, uh, you 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 know you euthanize a bird and take the eye out and uh, ask questions under the microscope but again it's been done for very few species of birds because it's so invasive and so what we do is we use those models to to apply it to other species uh, my, my preference of course, the behavioral question: I ask the birds a question about color. I paint uh, a different type of three D printed egg uh, with the UV uh, component, without the UV component, and ask them, "Will you treat it differently?" Uh, um, and uh, and the birds often respond uh, by tossing the eggs out or accepting the eggs. And uh, and I, I gather my data that way. Wow, that's
1: uh, that's really interesting. And yeah, I, I, as you might imagine, I don't love. Uh technique number three but uh, sounds no, like that's neither. super rare yeah
2: but, yeah, uh, yeah, and, and, and the, the, the interesting you know and, and, and I've done it all my life you know ask the, ask the bird the questions again and also ask them repeatedly because they might learn from an experiment they might learn from exposure so uh, we just published a paper to show that robins become more sensitive to the presence of cowbird eggs or other type of eggs in their nest when they had prior experience and for that you need to you know ask the bird before. Behaviorally, you know, again and again. Hey, what did you do yesterday? What are you doing today? Is this behavior different and predictably different? And so, you know, I like working with birds, uh, uh, you know, whose identity I know, uh, you know, whose nest I know and uh, um, who I can leave behind. You know, once I've done a couple of, uh, uh, you know, day-long experiments, uh, you know, I let them raise their chicks and, uh, and and become successful. And we learned, for instance, that robins um, that reject a certain type of egg are actually better parents so they are more successful in protecting their chicks and fledging their nestlings uh uh, when they are also good at rejecting foreign eggs from the nest
1: oh i see so they're they're so precise and selective that they say hey this one's out of here we're not having anything to do with this but the ones that are remaining they're going to be beautifully cared for and going to find a great outcome that's exactly it yeah wow interesting Again, this is Talking Animals on WNF. I'm Duncan Strauss. My guest is Mark E. Halber, professor, ornithologist, and author. Most recently, A Bird Day, a story of 24 hours and 24 avian lives. We invite you to join the conversation by calling 813 239 9663, emailing dj at wnf.org, or texting 813 433 0885. You know, Mark, since this show is called Talking Animals, when you kept saying, well, we've asked the birds this, we've asked the birds that. I kept hoping one, time, one answer would be that with actual speech they, uh-huh. an, they answer you, but I guess that's too much to hope for. So
2: it, it is a bit, but we actually are working on an experiment which is called a, a conjoint experiment. And so when you work with, this is a, a method that political scientists use, And so they give people two choices, you know, they give them, you know, a brown cube or a blue sphere, and they ask which one they prefer. And so we can, and then uh, they can infer preferences by asking, you know, which of the two objects they like. We can't tell the birds what to do, but what we can do is give them two choices. So we give them a large blue egg and a small speckled beige egg, for instance, uh, or a large speckled beige egg and a small blue egg, you know, vice versa. Um, and uh... and you know, the birds often just reject everything, and so you can't do this kind of statistical analysis on that experiment, but in about a third of our experiments, they only rejected one of the eggs, which made them similar to the human responses, even though I didn't tell them what to do because they were robins, um, and so, so on the third of the birds that actually rejected only one of the two egg types, we were able to ask, you know, what are your preferences based on do you prefer size, do you prefer uh, color, or do you prefer uh, maculation? And so we were very excited to be able to, you know, sort of interrogate the birds, you know, without linguistic abilities in an experiment that very much resembled those that uh, the political scientists and economists are using on humans.
1: And also, uh, when you were talking a moment ago uh, about uh, asking him and sometimes getting a different response, I would think different Factors could shape that right, whether it's habitat or sometimes it comes it comes up in your book a little bit is how climate change has of course made an impact on on some birds as as as, as it has on all of us, I guess, so yeah, I would absolutely. think that that would that would yield one set of responses previous to a different set because there wasn't that 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 impact of climate change or maybe the habitat was uh, disrupted in a different way, et cetera.
2: Yeah. At, at the proximate levels, you can ask questions about light exposure. You know, if your habitat is lighter now because, you know, the forests are sparser because of, of drought, um, you know, you might be able to to find, you know, more or less food items uh, just visually. You might be able to tell those eggs apart, uh, you know, more easily or less easily uh, because of the visual cues themselves. Uh, another aspect of global change is, of course, species coming into contact with each other. And so, you know, we're studying uh, robins and cowbirds that live in very similar habitats, but the cowbirds, uh, you know, have only recently expanded into Northeastern North America. uh, And by recently, I mean, you know, a scale of hundreds of years, uh, which from an evolutionary perspective is is nothing, you know, it's it's just a, a, you know, a drop of time. And so a lot of species have come into contact with the blue pressure that have never had contact, and so they are still accepting the cowbird egg, even though it looks vastly different from their own eggs. The most, uh, you know, sort of prominent example is wood thrush, you know, that used to live in the deep in the forest, now live in uh, fragmented habitats, and uh, they have no mechanisms to protect their nest from from cowbirds, even though they lay blue eggs and the cowbird lays a beige speckled egg. Um, so, so those kind of interactions, you know, have become, you know, more common between species that haven't interacted. Uh, uh, with each other. And, uh, and you know, to your question, we're actually doing an experiment with some collaborators in Argentina to ask the question whether the temperature at which point you see a foreign egg in the nest, uh, you know, becomes a factor in rejecting uh, or, or deciding to reject that egg itself. Uh, mm. uh, so ask me again in about two years' time, and I'll have an answer to your question.
1: Yeah, no, and I, I'm sure there will be a notable difference uh, just based on probably the likely difference in temperatures at, at, the, exactly. at that exact location so let's talk about the new book bird day um and by new again as we touched on earlier in the conversation it came out yesterday it's as new as yesterday so tell me about how the premise came together did the idea uh, that you ended up with kind of gradually unfold or was it one of those kind of light bulb moments where you just said this i've got it this is how i'm going to tell this book
2: yeah so you know, when you are an ornithologist, everybody assumes that you do your job, you know, first thing in the morning, right? Birds are super active, they engage in dawn chorus, you know, before sunrise. Um, and so most ornithologists are out there, you know, when, when the sun, uh, sun rises. Um, I work on cowbirds, which actually do a lot of things at sunrise and then their interesting behaviors after they have laid their egg is to socialize, to forage, to look for nests uh, of other birds. Um, I also worked on robins, which reject the cowbird eggs and they are lazy birds. Instead of laying their egg first thing in the morning, they can go up to midday or, you know, 2 PM in the afternoon to lay their egg of the day. Yeah. And so I became very interested in this uh, circadian structure of avian behaviors because of the weird birds that I was studying, even though some of them were, you know, typical backyard birds in North America. Um, and so I, I started thinking, uh, uh you know, what, how can I tell the behavioral story of these birds? Uh, and, uh, when I was in Bremen uh, on a fellowship in Germany, I encountered this midnight singing uh, uh, um, European robin, uh, uh, which you know is actually very different from our own robins, but but you know has the same coloration perhaps. Um, and so I started thinking, you know, like why is it singing at night? And then I started paying attention to who are the first birds that come to the feeder first thing in the morning, you know, who are the last birds who are leaving the feeders. I worked on birds in New Zealand that are nocturnal, um, and uh, there were. Just some species that I really wanted to learn more about. So the book is an amalgamation of species I knew about and species I wanted to learn about uh, by reading the primary literature. Um, and the structure of of twenty four uh, species, twenty four hours, uh, came because you know I was thinking maybe I'll just follow a single bird across the day. Uh, but I, I think uh, you know it was more interesting by covering different species of birds across
1: the different times. Oh, well, for sure, it was r- really fascinating just because again as a uh a lay just you know th- the fact that it was at 5 a.m or it was at 8 p.m or whatever was part of the story and the and these are these are short but really packed with information uh little, little chapters so you really get hooked and intrigued and then you think okay well what, what what's happening next or and where is it happening so it's uh it's kind of irresistible in that way and um Uh, so when you said that combination of birds some birds you wanted to study so this was a good excuse to do that but uh, were others pretty much uh, automatic choices like the proverbial no brainers
2: Sure. So, so you know, I definitely wanted to you know study an owl at night, or write about an owl at night, Mm -hmm. uh, or a a kiwi, of course, you know, the nightingale because its name says nightingale, Um, a night heron, you know, those were natural choices. All birds were interesting because they have this extra, you know, sensory uh, way of uh, of finding their way by clicking and you know using uh, um, um, the reflectance of the sound, you know, as uh, as information, much like dolphins or bats do. and so, you know, there were some, some stories that that were less on, lesser known and uh, and more interesting for me to tell. I wanted to talk about cowbirds and cuckoos and robins. Of course, uh, I wanted to talk about interesting birds with interesting socialities. So the eclectic parrot, you know, that engages in throuples uh, for breeding systems, you know, the super starlings that uh, that have communal nests. Uh, um, and then some birds, I just have only seen pictures of the standard wing nightjar, for instance, uh, has this incredible, you know, floating feathers when it flies um um and so i wanted to just learn more about it but it was also in yeah. jar so you know clearly it's a good one to cover as part of the daytime
1: for sure so you mentioned and, and again it's obviously a core part of your your own work uh the cowbird a few times can you just talk a little bit more about them just because it is it is kind of fascinating
2: what they do and how they do it uh so so um you know uh let's see uh, uh um uh, the nightjar you mean
1: Well isn't it the cowbird that is one of the birds that used sorry, to
2: sorry. Yeah yeah I, I I I didn't hear it Yeah the, the cowbirds are you know sort of you know, sort of my bread and butter as a scientist, but also bread and butter as a, as, a, as, an, as a as a as a uh, um They they're not very photogenic, but they are highly social. And so when you see them, they are always in groups. And so you think, well, they look just like any other blackbird, like a red-winged redwing blackbird or grackles. Uh But uh, in their little brain, you know, which is not much bigger than you know sort of size of a chestnut or something like that, they do very different things. You know, there is no mechanism for them uh, to incubate eggs. Uh, You can pump them up with different hormones that make other species of birds Uh, uh, incubate eggs. These were experiments done in the 60s, well before me. Uh, The the birds are not interested in sitting on eggs. What they are interested in is finding nests, uh, packing eggs, and then sneaking their own eggs into into those nests. And so what they do is actually have a brain area called the hippocampus, which is responsible for spatial memory. Um, So they memorize where the nests are the day before. Uh, because they lay their eggs about 10 minutes before sunrise, so they can't search overnight, you know, they don't have night vision, although we are looking at whether they have, you know, crepuscular vision uh, uh, better than some of the other blackbirds. Um, And so they they memorize where the nests are the day before or two days before, they look at the content, is this a nest that has eggs coming in, Uh, is it an active nest, is somebody incubating the egg already, and then they sneak in, you know, just before sunrise, uh, lay their egg, and then you know, they do it in three minutes or less and then they're out of that space. Uh, um, and that's a good thing because things like chipping sparrows or field sparrows, if they see a cupboard near the nest, they will abandon. They don't have the strength of the beak to pierce through the cupboard eggshell, which is thicker uh, than a typical blackbird eggshell, um, or grasp it because their beaks are too small. These sparrows uh, just abandon the nesting attempt. All
1: oh, so, like so sorry, Mark. I just didn't, didn't mean to interrupt, but I just want to make sure I understand. So you're saying the sparrow Arrow, sees the cowbird and just by virtue of seeing it knows, or at least suspects, what's up, and 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 then says, "Okay, well then I'm I'm, I'm getting away from this nest after all." That's exactly it. Yeah. Wow. Yeah.
2: So. So uh, a lot of birds, you know, we, we do these experiments where we 3D print birds and paint them and put them near nests of other species, and they attack the cowbird. You know, if you put a similar sized female um, a cardinal model, you know, nothing happens. If you play cardinal songs or wood songs, for instance, nothing happens. You play the cowbirds, um, of characteristic chatter call or rattle call, you know, the birds come in and, and look for somebody to beat up. Uh, but the sparrows are too small to protect. Take their nest from the cowbirds so what they do is if they ever spot a cowbird female near the nest they are out of there and, and try to build a nest somewhere safer and uh, more secure
1: and this is probably a rhetorical question and probably a, a, an evolutionary related question that's way above my pay grade but did the cowbirds ever lay nests uh, lay eggs in their own nest
2: not, not the cowboys, So we call them obligate brute parasites. Okay, and they they are they are done with that. They've, al- they've, some- they've always done it that way. Yes, yes. Okay. So for the last three, four million years, for sure. Okay. Um, and and this behavior evolved seven independent times in birds. So there's a thousand, uh, ten thousand bird species. About a hundred of them are obligate bird parasites. And this behavior, like the cowbirds, is present in seven lineages. There's a duck, uh, the European cuckoos, uh, Central American striped cuckoos. There are parasitic finches in Africa. Um, um, honey guides. They are all parasitic. And uh, and of course the cowbird lineage itself, uh, um, as well. And so, um, you know, if you, if you look at these, uh, uh these, uh, independent evolution of parasitism, they do things very differently. You know, some species like, uh, striped cuckoos or honey guides, uh, the chick actually kills the host nestmates and they grow up alone in the nest, uh, in the finches or the cowbirds, the chicks grow up together with the host nestmates and, uh, uh but they're more vigorous. They beg more intensively and mm. so they win the parental favoritism, uh, a game that way, uh, but yeah, uh, um, there are species like red-headed ducks that are facultatively interspecifically brood parasitic. So, red-headed ducks can uh, can uh, uh, build their own nest and incubate their own eggs. Sometimes they sneak their eggs into other red nests, and sometimes they actually sneak their eggs into uh, canvasback nests, which is another duck species. And uh, and I actually spent uh, uh, um, um, a spring break in uh, in my second year as an undergrad uh, looking at red-headed. Uh, 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 with uh, Mike Sorenson at the Smithsonian Research Center, um, and that's where my fascination with brood parasites came from. Uh, mm. uh, I was looking at uh, misimprinted ducklings and uh, trying to figure out how they found their way uh, when they were in the nest of a different species.
1: Yeah, wow, super fascinating. So I'm just going to ask in our remaining f- few minutes or so here, uh, Mark, just about it. some just random birds that are in the book, just, just sure. to give a better sense of kind of the scope of the book itself. So in some ways I think it's incumbent that we discuss the secretary bird, not, you know, in part at least because it's the book's uh, cover bird, so, sort of. So yeah. um, you want to maybe talk about how they how they approach their prey as opposed to
2: many other birds? Absolutely. So. So, a uh, uh, Steve Portugal from uh, from the UK has studied the biomechanics of how these secretary birds use their long, you know, sort of uh, uh, scaled feet uh, um, um, to. To kick uh, uh, snakes, uh, uh, you know, in the in the habitat, and so they are snake specialists, and uh, and they are able to, you know, sort of kick and uh, and do damage that way. Uh, uh, you know, they're also, you know, have these super long legs that are difficult to uh, uh, to strike at when you're a snake, you know, in the habitat itself. Uh, and so, uh, so I was fortunate to, to work with Steve on eggs, and then we became a biomechanics person, and and wrote a really beautiful paper about, uh, you know, how to kill. With, uh, with your feet uh, uh, when you're a long-legged creature like the secretary bird itself. Because
1: uh, that's uh, not without some risk, even though you say they, they have long legs and so they're pretty safe. But if they're killing a, a poisonous snake, I guess there's some risk inherent in that, just uh, if the snake gets gets to the foot.
2: Exactly, exactly. So, so you know, the, the further your vulnerable body portions are, the better you're off. Yeah.
1: And... Um, i got to ask about the Bat Hawk just because to me it's just sort of a disturbing image in some ways to uh, <laughs> picture what they do
2: yeah, so the bat so hawks are really interesting. They have a, a strange distribution in both Africa and uh, South Asia, uh, but what's most interesting about them is, uh, is they time their breeding to, to the bat reproductive uh, uh, um, cycle, and so their, their beaks uh, have these really wide gapes uh, relative to their, uh, their uh, skeletal size so they can swallow uh, their prey items, the bats, you know, whole, um, and they, they specialize on two times of the bat reproductive cycle. When the female is sitting on the eggs and the male is hunting for both himself and for his mate, uh, um, he typically hunts on pregnant female bats that are slower to fly uh, because of, uh, of carrying the, the embryos. And then when the fledglings come out of the, the bat hawk nest, uh, uh, that's when the juvenile uh, bats become flighted, but they are still not very uh, practiced in flying. And so the, the juvenile bat hawks can go for the juvenile bats as easy prey. I
1: Items. Hmm. Interesting. Um, and one also I want to ask about, just because I have sort of a at least personal connection to a similar breed, if not the identical one, but in, you're talking about the Indian mina? Which, right, right. Which are awesome. interesting because when I was when I was a kid I had a, an Indian mina of some kind um, and uh, or, or at least a related species for sure because that was definitely part of the name. And primarily we had it, or I had it as a kid, because, you could teach this bird to talk.
2: Yes, I think you had a beo that uh, that is sort of a larger, uh, a minor species, uh, and they are they're best known for their their uh, their speech mimicry. Uh, they are incredible. I mean, all starlings are, you know, are very good, and miners are just a type of starling. Um, so Indian miners are are really interesting because they've been uh, introduced. Um, to uh, to limit insect damage or uh, accidentally released from you know ships that were carrying you know sort of uh, rogue uh, miners uh, traveling on the ships uh, to all kinds of parts of the world from Madagascar to South Africa uh, uh, and uh, and uh, um, to Tahiti to New Zealand to Australia uh, uh, lots of other Pacific islands uh, they are in Florida uh, they are expanding uh, um, of course uh, uh, um, in those regions. Uh, um, and and Israel. And so I actually had a grant from the U.S.-Israeli Binational Science Foundation to study the mechanics uh, and the behavioral basis of uh, of uh, um, uh, minor invasions. You know, how come these birds are so successful at invading novel habitats? And, uh, and so we've, uh, you know, looked at museum specimens, you know, how have they changed since the invasion happened. Uh, we are looking at uh, their genome and understanding how genetic uh, uh, mechanisms are allow them to, uh, to become uh, a specialized. We're looking at their behavior. Uh, uh, we have a standard essay called the flight initiation assay, where you approach a species uh, and look at, at what distance do they take flight when you're approaching them. And we found that, uh, that the birds change their behavior depending on how long they've been introduced to a particular habitat or a particular country uh, uh, since their initial arrival. So even at these, these scales of 10, 20, 100 years, the birds are already changing their behavior and uh and the miners are super aggressive. you don't want to have them in your neighborhood. they are cavity nesters they uh, they displace a lot of other native cavity nesting species uh mm-hmm. um you know they're all over Hawaii for instance you know it's one of the the common birds you can see there uh, well established uh, uh um and you know of course uh, uh interfering uh, with uh, with you know some of the native species but uh but they are fascinating behaviorally and uh and uh, Uh, We can ask questions about their their, uh, 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 mental capacities. How can they solve uh, puzzle boxes? Um, And it looks like the birds that are at at the forefront of the invasion are quicker in solving puzzles uh, than the birds that are sort of in the more established habitats and also Mm -hmm. in their native range. Wow.
1: Well, this is all super fascinating. We have just about reached the end of time. But before we finish all the way, I just want to uh, note that... uh, the, uh, all these uh, birds that we're talking about that are profiled in the 24 hours, the, the story of 24 hours and 24 avian lives, feature beautiful illustrations by Tony Angel, who coincidentally was a uh, guest on this show back in 2012 when he had co authored uh, a book then called Gifts of the Crow. Anyways, the, the illustrations are, are fantastic. So thank you, Mark, so much for joining us. We're going with Mark Tauber. His brand-new book thank just you. out yesterday was Bird Day, A Story of 24 Hours and 24 Avian Lives. You can get that wherever you get your books. And also, if you want to find out more about him or some of his work, there's the, the website is cowbirdlab.org. So, Mark, thank you so much for joining us today and Talk Cam. It was a fascinating conversation.
2: Thank you. It was an honor. Thank you so much. Thank you.
1: In a moment, I'll talk with Matt Shelley, who for years now has organized Punks for Paws, an annual all-day punk concert featuring 12 bands, including Shelley's band, Arcane Arcade. Proceeds from this show happening this Saturday, December 9th at Pinellas Ale We'll go to Friends of Stray's Animal Shelter. We'll hear that conversation in just a moment here on Talking Animals. Right now, then we're going to step into the Comedy Corner with a bird-oriented piece from Hannibal Burris. Here's Pigeons Get Merked from Hannibal Burris in today's Comedy Corner on Talking Animals on WNF.
0: I have weird aspirations, like I really want to kick a pigeon. <laughs> cause pigeons walk around like they're untouchable, I'm like you're not untouchable, I'll kick it out of you. You're not waiting for the bus cause you can fly. But I can't kick pigeons cause there's always people around. If I kick one, some lady will see, like, oh my gosh, the guy just kicked the pigeon in broad daylight, and she go, and tells her husband, honey, I saw this guy. Kick a pigeon, brother. Her husband tells his boss, my wife said this guy. Kicked the pigeon and brought that like His boss threw somebody at the paper. They seen, you know, front page of the Tribune, black dudes are kicking pigeons. <laughs> There's been a flurry of pigeon kicking going on in the black community. It must be stopped at once. Save the pigeons. <laughs> must stop these PKBPs, pigeon kicking black people. <laughs> Save the pigeons. Acronyms are always hilarious. I don't know why I want to kick a pigeon. I just figured it make my day better. Somehow I kick a pigeon in the morning, something bad happens that evening. Like, you know what, that happened. But I kicked a pigeon earlier and she was relaxing and invigorating. It's impossible to kick a pigeon, it ain't too quick. I tried different strategies. I tried to like side swipe, kick a pigeon and shit. I tried to punt one. I set up cardboard. And act like I'm a break dancer, street performer. <laughs> and try to hit him with like a. But they don't buy it, they know all the gimmicks. It's, that's why I wanna have the pigeon kicking Olympics. Where you get judged by the distance that you kick the pigeon, the number of fellas you kick off the pigeon, and the an octave of the squawk. When you kick the pigeon like a high pigeon, like, ooh, that's a gold medal. You kick out of that pigeon, you're a goddamn warrior. You deserve your own statue in a park, like
1: yeah. <laughs> that was Hannibal Burris. Today's comedy corner of the beast called "Pigeons Get Merks," taken from his album "My Name Is Hannibal." Now it's time to speak with Matt Shelley about "Punks for Pause," the uh, now annual concert featuring a. Uh, a multitude of punk bands benefiting Friends of Strays Animal Shelter. This is Matt Shelley here on Talking Animals on Devon. Good morning, Matt. Hey, good morning, Talking. How are you? Thanks for having me, buddy. Oh, thanks for uh, joining us again on Talking Animals. So uh, let's jump in. But first, I was trying to remember how many years now has Punks for Paws been going?
3: This will be our fourth year doing Punks for Paws. Uh, we started in 2019 and that uh, interrupted. Yeah. For obvious reasons, and right. then, uh, came back for twenty-one and twenty-two, and uh, this makes year four.
1: Nice, and uh, and what prompted that very first one? What, what, what was the initial idea behind it? Uh,
3: you know, me and my wife have been uh, big supporters of animal shelters, and I've, I've always been a fan of, of No Kill Animal Shelters, and I love the work that Friends of Strays does uh, over in St. Pete, and yeah. I knew some people that work there, and um, also I play in a band called Arcane Arcade, and you know a lot of our friends' bands play, and. Uh, you know, it was just a good chance to to get a whole lot of uh, a lot of the things that I love together to raise money for
1: a good cause. That's great. So uh, over the years, I'm guessing with this being number four, you guys have probably you know added up quite a chunk of change for uh, for Friends of Stray's.
3: Yeah, I think we've we've managed to raise somewhere in the neighborhood between about two thousand and four thousand dollars every year that we've done it.
1: Oh, every year that that amount yeah wow year, that's great
3: with about yeah yeah it's, it's been pretty successful and it's my goal every year to try to, to beat the the year before. so
1: sure
3: one of the things that we're doing this year a little bit different is we're going to have a compilation cd for sale um to benefit friends of strays also with a lot of the bands that are playing on the show as well as some other area punk bands so if you come by the show look for that also
1: that's great, so you can see the show you you pay you pay your money to see the show that goes directly all to Friends of strays and then you can also buy the uh the c d comp and which also benefits directly Friends of strays that is exactly correct Yes, uh, that's cool that's a lot of friends of strays action there that's good. that could be a a great day for them and I'm sure you probably will exceed last year's uh, total with the uh c d being thrown into the mix that's great so how do you how do you book the show is um is there kind of a mix that you're going for from year to year, or how do you put it together? You
3: know, I like to I like to bring back some of the some familiar faces, some bands that uh, that generally tend to uh, some friends' brand bands or, or bands that we know uh, you know want like to bring a crowd, or they people have enjoyed them at past Punks for Paws, and I always like to bring in some new acts to kind of keep it fresh. And we've got some uh, some new bands on this year's uh, bill that we haven't uh, seen on Punks for Pauls before. Uh, Spanish needles and Razor and the Boogie Man are, are two of the ones that I'm really excited about there. Great, and uh, so we're we're really looking forward to a really good time Saturday, man.
1: That's very good. Well, Let me before we uh, go on to anything else, or uh, God forbid, we run out of time. Let me just hi- highlight the details. So it's this Saturday, December 9th. The show gets underway at two p.m. and it you know then runs for for hours basically, and it's at Pinellas Ale Works in uh, St. Pete and if someone wanted to find out more or get t- get tickets only at the door, or can you get them in advance somehow, Matt, or how does that work?
3: Nope, just just at the door this year. Uh, okay, up the keep door. it we'll simple. Venmo, Cash App, you know, uh, Cash, anything, any, any way that you'll give it to us, like, it's all going to the same place anyway. So.
1: No, that's great. That's very cool. And again, I think if, some, if someone had kind of a busy day, they could go almost at any random time and see a bunch of great bands just because it's, Probably going to be like, uh, what, eight, nine hours or so? Absolutely, yeah. Anytime from 2 o'clock till probably 11.30, 11.45, if you come to
3: Penelis work, you know, you're bound to see a, a really good few bands. Uh, we're going from 2 o'clock till almost midnight.
1: That's great. And again, as I think we've established, anything that uh, gets raised there, uh, whether you buy a ticket to the show and or also the, uh, the CD comp, all that money goes to... Uh, Friends of Strays, so you can't go wrong and have a great, uh, great afternoon and evening of music as well. So, Matt, thanks so much. Good luck. I'm sure it's going to be another success. I'm sure you're going to outraise last year. Sounds like you're well on your way to that. And um, thanks for doing this. Thanks for helping the animals and helping Friends of Strays. And uh, appreciate you coming on today to talk about it again. Thank you so much, Duncan,
3: for having me and uh, helping me get the word out, man. I appreciate it.
1: All right, man. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Coming up on WMF's Slice of Life, the wonderful new show hosted by Randy Zimmerman and others. After that, we shift back to music programming with Jim Bannon holding forth from one to three, followed by Nancy C. Now hosting the Wednesday Traffic Jam from three to six p.m. At which point, our terrific Wednesday night block of Latin music kicks in. Meanwhile, on this show at the moment, as a prize for Name That Animal tune, I'll be offering something fabulous from the Talking Animals vault. The first person who calls eight one three two three nine nine six six three and correctly identifies this animal song—it's a familiar song, but just maybe given a little bit of a medieval treatment. If that makes any sense, it will in a sec when you hear it. Probably. Let's name that animal. Tune I' talking animals. M W M F. Can you name that animal tune? Vaguely familiar. I, th- I know what you're thinking. Possibly, I know what you're thinking. Anyway, we'll take any calls that come in. When you do, maybe recognize it off off the air because we just to have just nearly reached the end of today's edition of Talking Animals on WMNF Tampa. I'll return next Wednesday, December 13th, with yet another edition of the show. Invite you to join me for that, and uh, also invite you to visit talkinganimals.net for audio archives of just about every show we've ever done over all these. Long, 20 years or so about Apple Podcasts we're able to do, as well as on uh, other podcast platforms also links to our social media pages and more that's all at TalkingAnimals.net I'm Duncan Strauss thanks very much for listening have a good week be kind to animals be kind to others be kind to yourself this is Talking Animals on WNF Tampa Brandon Clearwater Largo Weeki Wachee and beyond NPR's news headlines coming up momentarily then Slice of Life been back in the music with Jim Bannon and um, Nancy C and all kinda of good stuff following after that. Catch you next Wednesday here on WMF on Talking Animals. Thanks.